Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind y'all to rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening. You can connect with us on social media. We're at ProBookNerds on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Or you can send an email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With that, let's get into my interview with Dan Adut. My guest today is a stand-up comic, actor, writer, and producer based out of New York City and Los Angeles. He's a national headliner and frequent guest on The Tonight Show, as well as currently acting on Cobra Kai. His podcast, Green Eggs and Dan, takes a look at You Are What You Eat, where he brings listeners in on conversations about food with some of his most entertaining friends. Here to talk about his new book, Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator, and How Maybe That's a Dumb Way to Live, out March 21st. It's Dan Adut. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm I'm so glad you could be here. And I wanted to start us off right away with, can you tell the listeners a bit about Undercooked? Sure. Um, Undercooked ended up just being a, a complete uh, out of nowhere thing. I'm I'm not an I don't consider myself a, an author. I mean, I'm a TV writer, but. Um, I had done a podcast episode of uh, Steve Ranella's podcast. It's called Meat Eater, and it's a hunting podcast. Um, and I had these really funny stories of when I went hunting. And the only reason I I'm not a I'm not a hunter. I give I give off way more of a, a gatherer vibe. I I went hunting just because I'm such an insane foodie, and I wanted to explore my horizons with food. And I had these very funny hunting stories. So. I reached out to Steve Ranella, who's got the number one hunting podcast in the country. And I said, I'd love to talk about this. And he was like, come out to Montana and you can be on my podcast. I was like, all right. So I got in a plane, went to Montana and I did his podcast. And it was one of his most downloaded episodes ever, apparently, because again, I'm a comedian. I'm a comedian. I'm not like, like a, like a, I'm not like a, I was chewing tobacco out in the field. I was like, you know, I'm fumbling with my gun in the field. So it resonated and my manager listened to it and she was like, you should write a, a movie about your hunting exploits because the main crux of it was about me hunting with my friend Mo and I'm an Iranian Jew and he's an Arab Muslim and <laughs> we're hunting partners. And so I tried to write a movie uh, and the outline wasn't good. We both didn't like it. And she was like, why don't you just write about why you love food so much? Because I've always loved food so much. And I was like, why? I, I love food because it's delicious. She's like, just go a little deeper. So I wrote this chapter or I wrote this piece, free writing about why I love food. And she, it was about my relationship with my dad. And she uh, 
she was like, this could be a chapter of a book. Do you have any more in you? I was like, sure. So I wrote two other chapters. One was about going to the number one restaurant in the world uh, with my, at the time, fiance. And it was a like a 15 course meal. And one of the courses was a risotto and it was undercooked. And we had this real existential crisis of, do you return a dish to the number one restaurant in the world? The day that it became the number one restaurant in the world, like, and we ended up doing it and it ended up ruining the whole experience. <laughs> but the chapter, the, the chapter was really funny, but it was also about the kind of uh, fraying of our relationship. This is where I get to hold up the book and be like, yeah, I did read that. I did read that one. I have a, I have an early copy here, but right. It is a fascinating exploration into how your relationship can fall apart from things like that, or how these kind of really grand adventures were shaping where you were kind of trying to save via distraction. Like if we're always on the move, we're always trying new foods. Is that going to make you know, the day-to-day -day better. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where everyone was so envious of us because we went on these insane food adventures. We would just pick up and go to a different part of the country and just spend all the money we had on these adventures. And people were so envious, but it was all just being done to try to hold on to our relationship, to, to stop the relationship. It was spackle. It was just to stop the relationship from falling apart. And, you know, I think it's pretty current now because you go on Instagram and all anyone shows is the amazing foods they're eating. And now I'm so cynical. I'm so cynical. The, the more, the nicer your Instagram is, I was like, that guy's life is falling apart. <laughs> In Undercooked, we kind of get to peer into your life through these different vignettes, these different stories uh, overall. As a writer, what was your process like? And how did you decide on this form of kind of story or essay uh, kind of memoir to tell your story? I honestly, I've never really been good at, like I, I'm better at writing TV than I am at writing movies because a long form, like a novel, the structure to me gets so maze-like that I, I get lost in it. It's just not my forte. I'm good at like little fun things, like little fun stories. I, I've always loved short stories. Like growing up, I um now okay, now I can sound like a like a smart writer. Um, but I was a I was a French literature major in college and I loved Guy de Maupassant. And he just had these short stories. And I was just like, oh, it's so easily digestible. It's not it's not that much of a commitment. I'm 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 a commitment phobe uh, when it comes to books, too. So I'm like, <laughs> just give me 10 pages and let me move on. Um, I just love that format. I've always loved David Sedaris and the way, you know, his format, too. So I tried to do that, you know, but just like with food as the backdrop. My process was I don't know, man, I don't I didn't have a process. I was what story came to mind and how do I translate that? Yeah. And I was just trying to fit it into this. Uh, I didn't even, to tell you the truth, I didn't know when I got into it, I didn't know how the book was going to end. I didn't know what was going to lead to what I just tried to write really riveting stories. And, and halfway through, I realized, Oh wait, this can work with this thread. This arc can all, you know, we can skewer all these with one with the kebab skewer put them all in the same skewer but in terms of I don't know how inside baseball you want me to get but I was writing and this was crazy and I don't think my editors know this but I was 
writing what I thought was going to be a book length. So I, I finished like all these stories and I was like, that feels like a book. I think I did it. I think I did it. And I think I had two months left to hand in my manuscript. Oh no, a month and a half left to hand in my manuscript. This is how stupid I, was. I didn't even have like an, ex, ex, I, was, I, I wasn't even doing word count. I had no idea how long I had, but just in my head, I was like, that feels like a book. And then I was like, maybe I should find out exactly how much I should do. And I reached out to my agent. And I was like, how long is this book supposed to be? <laughs> and she's like, well, your contract, oh, no. you have a contract that says exactly how long this book should be. And the contract said it has to be a minimum of 60,000 words. And I'm like, I'm like, how many words? I have no idea how many words are words. <laughs> uh, right, right. Where were you, where were you at? I start adding, I start adding it, Joe, and I have an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> and I finally get to the last cell and I press addition, 35,000 words. With a month and a half left. And how long had you been working at that point? Eight months. Joe, I went nuts. And this was, so, and this was in November also. And my, I remember my mom was visiting from New York and I like put her on a plane. I was like, you're going back home. <laughs> Mom, I gotta write. Mom, you're out of here. Thanksgiving is over. I canceled Thanksgiving and I didn't go to Thanksgiving. And you know what I also did, which was very helpful? I Googled authors who wrote books in record time. Okay. And I found out that Ian Fleming wrote like the first James Bond book in like three weeks. And I found out that, you know, Stephen King had this 10,000 words a day. Thing. Like I just went. And I just got so inspired or like F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby in like, you know, an afternoon. No, that's that's really cool, though, because it's it's so wild to just think of. Being like, yeah, of course, this feels like a book. I'm done. I've hit the end of the road. And then, boom, you've got to come up with 20,000, 25,000 more words in a in a matter of, you know, a quarter of the time that it took you to write everything previous. So you found that those kind of motivating pieces, like this is how fast, you know, James Bond was written, that really helped amp you up? Or what else did you have to do to get yourself in that frame of mind? I'm telling you, that amped me up. I think the, uh, the, st the Stephen King, I think it's a thousand words a day. The th Stephen King, a thousand words a day thing really got me going because I had now I had a target. And I was just looking at the word count thing on the bottom as I was writing. And it was also really helpful in that, you know, there's a lot of very vulnerable stories in this book, uh, you know, about relationships not working out or my, my, the processing the death of my older brother. And um, I was putting them off because I was just like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and now I was like, I was like, you have no choice but to feel this. And I was just cranking through the hardest chapters to write. And it was actually, really helpful because it was like you don't have time to sit here and be sad in your feelings later let's just go through it and it was actually like after I finished it then it was like I had this crazy release or I was just like writing and tears coming down and it, I just wasn't stopping and it was it was really riveting actually um but I you know having that due date man I do well with a deadline especially when I'm I'm behind the behind the uh the eight ball let me tell you something a deadline when there's money involved oh boy mm -hmm. yeah I was like oh no I already bought that expensive barbecue machine I need to <laughs> I already spent my advance uh <laughs> oops 
I I spent my advance on such dumb stuff. I bought like a smoker. <laughs> but you are like a foodie. All all statements aside, food is a passion of yours. Food is something that is critical to you from those early moments relating with your father and then all the way through in managing your grief. And I, I think your subtitle kind of speaks really well to this. I, I personally, I love it, the how I let food become my life navigator and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. But after, you know, after reading the book, we can see where this obsession set in. And how would you say you started obsessing? And then where did you kind of regain control? and uh, take it back to maybe a passion. So yeah, I started my obsession with food with my dad. My dad, Iranian man, grew up in Iran, went to, got a scholarship to go to school in uh, Switzerland and was always into good food and raised me. My, my main bond with my dad was through food. I was a middle child, didn't get any attention any other way. Um, and I really fell in love with food more as a way to relate with my dad. Um, and after my older brother died, uh, he and my mom became pretty religious Jews and became kosher. So we never went to restaurants anymore. We never, you know, could kind of imbibe in the things that would bring us together. And so my response to that was to lash out like a child and to be like, if you can't eat with me, I'm going to eat without you. And I started to, I grew up pretty kosher. You know, I didn't eat pork or shellfish. And after that, I was like, all right, if you, you know, I'll show you if you, you know, I'll eat things that you can't eat with me. And so I started becoming non-kosher. I started to uh, obsess over cooking and how to cook restaurant foods that I might, I couldn't eat with my dad anymore. Um, and I became the intern at a Michelin starred kitchen in New York called the Spotted Pig, which if you're from if you remember, ended up becoming this like temple of doom of, <laughs> of the culinary world. Um, and then I got into hunting just so that I could eat the coolest, most local seasonal foods. And, and, you know, I mentioned the book, like this was before Joe Rogan and, you know, was, was, was hailing it, talking about how great killing animals is, <laughs> or like uh, it was before even Michael Pollan, it was before the omnivores, omnivores dilemma. So it was a really weird time to be a Jew from Long Island going hunting. I mean, I just went down this crazy rabbit hole and then it was, you know, it seeped into my relationships. If someone couldn't, if someone was an amazing foodie, that's all I cared about. And I ignored any other red flag. And if someone was an amazing person, but had dietary restrictions that would like completely cloud my view of them in the book, I don't want to, I don't want to give away the ending, but there is, you know, there's definitely a moment that, uh, that puts all of this into perspective. And uh, I think it's really hard because it's so glorified to be a, a food adventurer. You know, I say, I say in the intro, it's like we deify people like, you know, who have food shows like Anthony Bourdain is everyone's idol as he should be. And he was living the life that we all wanted to live, you know, and he still wasn't happy. I mean, if that's, when he when he died, I was just like that was for everyone. It was like such a wake up call. I'm gonna tell them the subtitle of my book, how I, how food became my life navigator, and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. They don't understand. They're like, I don't get it. It's so much fun. Like, why? How could it be dumb? Like, what are you talking about? So hopefully, in reading the book, 
that's my mission is that is that people get get that in a fun way i mean it's you know I, that's the bottom line is like you know the the i always say the number one commandment of every comedian is be funny <laughs> and you absolutely do that every story you manage to cram something so emotional or so like oh i really have to think about that packaged around just a bunch of like great jokes to be like yeah i'm talking something serious but let's remember to laugh let's remember to do this and it is it is funny it it really does make you think because food is your through line but also the the through line is why is my subtitle so true why was this a bad way for me to live why should we all navigate what our relationship with food is so of course right we do want to avoid spoilers so we won't get too much into your grief and healing process but what did you have set in place for yourself as you were writing i know the speed and just kind of being forced to get through it really held you together but did you have anything set up or any plans in place knowing you were going to be tackling you know the death of your brother so you know losses in relationships so many tough feelings to process knowing you're going to relive them i really didn't i'm telling you joe i don't know how to i'm not i am not a i'm not an author i know i'm an author but i'm not it, this was i wasn't prepared for it but I started to have a little feedback loop that I knew something was good when I couldn't stop crying while I was writing. Like, it was like weird. Almost. Like, it was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, I can't control my emotions. And it wasn't like I'm weeping or anything, but it's just, it's just a welling up. And once I had that little well up, yeah, I was like, oh, cool. I got something good here. And I'll tell you, you know, there was a chapter about my about Persian cooking and it's about my grandmother. And the first draft of it was very like it was like cliche grandmother talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my grandmother's the best. My grandmother made great food and I miss my grandma. And then and that's how it went. And it was it was cool. But then I kind of explored a little more and I got my grandfather's story in there, too, which Adds, added a completely different element and then it became about the relationship that my grandmother and grandfather had which was great but also not great and tough to write about and also uh I knew that my mom would have a real tough time reading it uh and I still know I she still hasn't read it I'm scared of my mom you have no idea <laughs> it's funny because I have a couple friends who are writers and they're like okay you gotta let everyone know that that you're writing about them and that it's going to come out. I was like, I will tell every single person except for my mother because I'm very scared of her. She um, found out on Thanksgiving while you were sending her back home. <laughs> exactly. I, well, I used my advance money to send my mom back in a flight. Look, it was, it was, again, it was really like bungee jumping in a way. Um, I always say one of my favorite comedians who actually gave me a blurb for my book is Hassan Minhaj, okay? And I went to his last one-man show and I told him afterwards, the thing he does so great is he gets super emotional on a scene, in, in, a, in a joke, in a bit, he's on stage, and then right away pulls you out with a hilarious joke. And I told him, I was like, I feel like I'm in a plane nosediving towards, you know, towards the land, and then you just pull out right before we hit. And that to me is such a cool thing and I tried to do that as much as I could in the book um because it's like bungee jumping for your emotions you know 
it's a really powerful way to experience your stories and and right that release of emotions and that that kind of quick return to your reality so you don't get too trapped in someone else's feelings yeah and I don't I don't want this to be a bummer for people like you know if you want a bummer go get a different book this is fun fun but it's definitely like a little bit of a you know it's a it's a little bit of a mind fuck just because you know, I, one of my buddies who's a food writer read it and he was like, dude, I've never read a book that made me laugh, cry and starve at the same time. Absolutely. I found myself looking for snacks every time I would pick this up. It's like, <laughs> this is just normal cheese. I want expensive cheese now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, that's the other thing I'm in, in some chapters, I'm definitely unabashedly pretentious. <laughs> But even that, I tried to under undercut that and be super self-aware of how ridiculous this whole thing is. But your your social media presence also really speaks well to that as well, where you're offering like three budget wines everyone has to have, but also paired with, you know, like the three most expensive things you have to try. And and I think that's that's a great way to live because we all have to eat. It's what keeps us moving. And if, you know, some some... I eat to live, but I, it's a great way to encourage everyone to at least have one day, a week, a month, whatever it is for you that you are living to eat. Oh, and I think, I'm I think you. these stories are really, are really a great way to look at that and just kind of go, oh, someone else appreciates food so much. And maybe I should try that for myself instead of just, you know, well, here's the same old uh, frozen meal. Like let's, let's spice it up. Yeah. And it's also pretty funny because on my social media, I post a lot about food and I post a lot about wine, like you're saying. And then, and then people meet me, they're like, how do you not have gout yet? How? How? <laughs> um, and I tell them like, that's what I post. That's what I post for the world to see. You don't see the arugula salad with no dressing that I make most afternoons. No one wants to see that, you know? <laughs> right. It goes back to the, like, we only show what's sexy on Instagram. We only show what does the numbers. We, you know, no one yeah. no one needs to know about the, the light mayo going into the tuna. <laughs> totally, totally. And I feel like in a lot of ways, my book is kind of showing a lot of the unsexy. Um, and at my expense, like it's no one gets hurt in the book except for me. <laughs> and I think I think as long as it's, you know, it's the biggest form of self-deprecating comedy I think I've ever engaged in. Please, I, I always say in the first chapter, like, feel free to laugh at my expense. Like, that's the point here. That's why we're all here. Absolutely. Your writer friends gave you some fantastic advice of warning people that you are writing about them because in all of the interviews I've done, uh, majority of times it pops up with fiction writers that that their family will be the first ones to reach out and say, is this person that's a really terrible character about me? Are you writing about me? I can't imagine what the response has been like when they are actual real people. Have you gotten any pushback from anyone who's read advanced or knows that you've written about them? You know, I haven't got, here's the thing again. So yeah, look, I wrote about my buddy Mo and um, he, uh, I had him read his chapter about when we go elk hunting and he definitely changed a couple things that I wouldn't have even thought of as being issues, uh, little things that didn't matter. So I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'll change that. Um, you know, with the stories about my grandmother, I went through this weird, Middle Eastern people are very private especially about 
you know, family skeletons, like things in the family. You do not want anyone to know that anything is going on bad in your life. Everything is fine. You never talk about anyone being sick. I always say I want to write a one-act play about Persian culture called Everything's Fine, The Funeral's Tomorrow. <laughs> that... <laughs> That sums it up right there. That totally (laughs) sums it up. So like, there's never anything wrong. And, you know, I get pretty, um, I get pretty raw about the relationship that my grandmother and grandfather had. And, and I almost didn't run it by my mom or her brothers because I knew what they would say. They would say, don't write about this. But part of me was like, it's not just their story. It's I own my grandparents' story also. It's their, it's my grandparents' story. And it doesn't mean that their kids have a, a monopoly on it. I have my rights to it as well. Um, you know, if I was writing about my parents or if I was writing about my aunts and uncles, yes, obviously. But I felt for some reason with my grandparents, knowing that there was going to be this like almost, I don't know, the, uh, childish isn't the way to look at it, but just this kind of, old school mentality of like everything needs to be buttoned up that just using that that's the worst way to tell a story right you're not giving anyone anything and this is your chance to kind of take control of that narrative and also share it with people who live that family life as well who have who have seen it and kind of seeing what impact it's had on you or your family as a response to your story Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So look, cousins of mine have read that chapter and they loved it. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping my mom will like it. Um, But yeah, I think, uh, look, it's weird. I mean, and and then with like ex-girlfriends, I changed their names and, you know, I, I obviously changed a bunch of stuff that paints them in a good light because I don't need to paint them in a bad light. So um, there's nothing there that would be an issue. And then Crown Publishing has a lawyer that calls you. And literally, I'm telling you, Joe, we were on the phone for four hours combing through the book just with legal. Uh, can you say this? Can you say that? Let's change this person's name. Let's change that person's name. I mean, it was wild. The things that we had to change. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, We explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. What are your thoughts on the importance of home cooking? Wow. Um, it's it's, It's so sad that it's becoming a lost art. It's so sad. And it's, you know, 
the thing is it really doesn't take too much and i think that in a i think in a weird way the food tv shows everything on the food network um i love the food network don't get me wrong but just this whole concept of having these gurus teach us how to cook on tv and having all these cookbooks that everyone needs on their table it is over scientificifying scientificifying that's the word scientificifying cooking and i see it when friends take a stab at it and try to cook and they're like oh this needs only it says half a teaspoon of salt if i make any like they think it's like like they're they're built like they're like they're building a neutron bomb and if they mess up one thing like the house is gonna gonna explode and i think that um you know i think people need to just chill out and rely on their senses a little more and and almost learn from learn from people that they know learn from people in their lives instead of books and people on tv look i was on a food i host a food network show and i see how the sausage is made and let me tell you something none of the chefs that are on the food network that are showing you how to cook and they're like it needs to be three quarters of a cup of this when they're cooking at home they're not measuring anything out and they're honestly doing they're doing a disservice to people by saying that they should say put in as much water so that it looks like this so that it looks like when you're braising you know there was a great um there was a great chef fergus henderson who is the chef of a restaurant in london um i'm forgetting the name of it it's a very famous restaurant and um he has a re- i will never forget it it was so poetic but it's a recipe for a braise and he says put as much water in so that your pieces of meat are floating on on top of the water like crocodiles heads in a in a in a in a lake so cool at every and it's so poetic and it's so like you know you know exactly what that means i think that's such such a good point make it make it accessible in ways that people can understand do what fits your pan uh salt to taste versus only a quarter of a teaspoon like yeah and then also oh my uh, the temperature obsessiveness of like it needs to be at 425 it needs to be at 375 like it wasn't I think back in the day there was a hearth and they lit the fire and they cooked things around it like but I would also say that something important to do while you're cooking a recipe just to learn is be in touch with your senses when even if you're using a um a thermometer in the chicken breast to know exactly when it's done when you take it out squeeze the chicken breast and feel it and feel feel the firmness of it and feel like oh okay that's what it's supposed to and if it's overcooked then be like okay that was too firm i now i that feeling is in my head or the sizzles like what the sizzles sound like when something is done so almost like take a bird's eye view to cooking if if it feels too daunting to to be a, a you know to to be indiana jones in the kitchen like joe and i are and just rely on your senses then yes, baking is definitely for you. I can't do baking. I always mess up because I get so impatient and that's my own that's my own journey. And the only <laughs> baking I can do is breads because breads flip back over. I think people have overcrafted mm. bread recipes to the point of this is too specific. Bread needs every time I've made one of my grandmother's bread recipes, uh, my mother goes, well, it tastes it tastes like my mother made it. How did you do that? And I go, I didn't follow any of these directions because that's how my grandmother right. made everything it was just oh i i know i need this much flour because of how the dough feels now just like 
I didn't follow the rules. That's why it works. Oh, I only yeah. had oat milk in the fridge. So I made that work. Shocking. <laughs> Guess what? Grandma would have done that too. Ain't no, ain't no, ain't no grandma who had a digital scale. Okay. Ain't no grandma who had a digital scale. <laughs> Although I will say rule of thumb that I do, um, that I stick to is when I am baking and I'm using a recipe, I half the sugar all the time. And it has nothing to do with health whatsoever. It has to do with taste. I feel like, I don't know what it is, if it's an American thing and that we're so obsessed with sugar, but desserts always come out way too sweet um, in cookbooks. Half the sugar, everything comes out perfect. That makes a ton of sense. I just have to put on all the right music and surrounding noise so I can focus for <laughs> for the 40 minutes <laughs> it'll take me to measure and prep everything just for the sugar <laughs> just for the sugar everything else you know you be you Joe. exactly you know ain't no grandma had a digital scale so <laughs> i love I, it i think it's perfect that's our spinoff podcast from this one yeah <laughs> we talk to grandmas every week we we're gonna use the bill withers song so it's like ain't no grandma with a digital scale that's the one I, i'm sold <laughs> who do we need to contact <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think we go on Shark Tank. Isn't that how this I works? I think you're right. That's that's what I've heard. You just say, hey, sharks, I would like to pitch you a podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. Who's in? Mr. Wonderful? I'm sure. He's always in. So you've traveled the world for culinary experiences. As you mentioned earlier, you've also already talked about kind of the namesake in the book for Undercooked and what may be perhaps one of your worst. But what was one of your best or even what's your white whale? What's left out there? Where do you still want to go and experience? My favorite food city is it's a tie between Paris and Tokyo. I just am obsessed with them. And I also am not, I've become super obsessed with the lowbrow. I'm not, I'm done. Find, I have fine dining fatigue. I am over it, man. I can't really, like very rarely. So um, the last time I was in Tokyo, I went on a ramen tour and I was just having three bowls, of, three bowls of ramen a day. It was like five bucks a bowl of ramen. And it was just incredible bowls of soup. And there was this one ramen shop I went to. I'm forgetting the name, but I had to take like three trains to get to it. And then I had to walk. And it's this old lady who is like an award winning ramen chef. And ramen, ramen in, in Japan is a man's game. It's like a blue collar dude. And this old lady was cranking out bowls of ramen that were, oh my God, it was like you were just bathing in the, in, in, in the pig soul. <laughs> I mean, with handmade noodles and just deliciousness. And I love that you could get that joy from five bucks. If you're getting joy from a $500 meal, yeah, you better get joy from a $500 meal. But to get that from a $5 bowl of soup, that to me is like true masterful cooking. I think that's such a smart point that it's like the fatigue of the expense, the mystique, the mystere that that needs yeah. to be over because there is magic in the gas station taco stand. Like there is magic in the $5 bowl of ramen that you're not getting anywhere else. No, it's a lot harder to do. Um, I also, uh, there's a restaurant in Paris that I keep thinking of, uh, which I write about in the book called L'Avant Comptoir, which is a hidden little restaurant that you walk in and it's almost like, I would say it's like, 
I don't know, like 75 square feet. It's like tiny. Um, it's a hundred square feet. Let's give it a hundred square feet. Um, but you're cramped in like sardines and the, instead of a menu up on the ceiling hanging are little pictures of food <laughs> and you basically point to them and um, on, and everything is super cheap. And on the bar, they just have humongous bowling ball, bowling ball sizes of butter, just communal butter. <laughs> like only the french you cannot if you did that in america people would you would have it. like oh the health department would would come out of helicopters <laughs> with ak-47 where is this butter from and when was it last changed <laughs> and um the food is so delicious they're doing like french spanish style tapas paris to me is so interesting because they're they have this kind of new food movement that is that is going away from the traditional and they're just they're just like forging this cool new food that's small plates that are I usually hate when people say small plates it's, what I mean is like it's just not it's not like you sit down and there's like a you know a huge duck in your plate with like a thick sauce it's like cool little things and there's this other restaurant called Eau Deux Amis A-U-X Deux Amis and it is just a cool hit place. No one really knows about it unless you're in the know. It's not expensive. There's loud music, cool wine, cool people smoking cigarettes, sitting on the corner. So French. It's not on a lot of lists, which I can't believe. And it is just like, it's the best food you're going to get. Uh, and it's, again, everything's super cheap. I'm like, I that to me is just so much more impressive and fun. I'm like, I'm done with... And I think everyone is kind of done with fine dining to some extent, you know? At this point, I want it to be worth the, like every every dollar counts. So it's that like, yeah. oh, if this is $10, if this is $20, if it's amazing, I'm going to be blown away. And if it's just fine, it's just fine. But there's, there's such a different expectation when you flip to that fine dining scale that it's like, I don't want to get dressed up for a meeting, let alone to go eat i've been eating on my couch for the last three years like right i don't own a blazer that fits anymore <laughs> like let's just right let's yeah. have a good time <laughs> yeah i don't need your pageantry okay i have i have tiktok on my phone if i if i need to be entertained oh i love it if you could only eat from like one place for the rest of your life where is that whoa that's a great question if I could eat from one place for the rest of my life. Okay. Okay. Lately I've been nerding out on yakitori. Yakitori is like the Japanese art of skewered meats and mostly chicken. And there's a restaurant in LA called Nambankan that, and this is what I write in the book. Like I went from being a food adventurer, like every place I go to has to be a new different place to I just want to go somewhere where I'm treated really nicely. They know me. I know them. I can get a table whenever I want. It's comfortable and the food is awesome. And this place, Nambankan, is so amazing. It's like it's in a strip mall in LA. I know it's good. Yeah. <laughs> strip mall. <laughs> the closer you are to a 7-Eleven, the better the food yes. is in LA. <laughs> and this guy, Tony, um, who is the owner, is this is you know, slick, older Japanese man is always wearing a suit and he's just so charming and he's funny and he flirts with whoever you come with to the restaurant. And he's just, 
he's just the best. I remember once I went there alone and there was this guy sitting next to me who was, uh, I've never met anyone. Like the guy was ordering huge bottles of sake just for himself. He's like, come on, man, have some with me. I'm like, okay. I ended up getting so drunk. And I went to Tony. I was like, Tony, I, I can't drive. I was like, I can't drive home. I'm so drunk. I don't know what to do. My car's outside and I'm going to get towed. And he's like, don't worry, Dan, I'll take care of it. The guy took my car. He took my car from me. He's the owner. And I went back the next day and just like got my car back from him. And I'm like, if that is not like, that's what I want from a restaurant. That's how you know you're a, you're like a local. You are a regular at a spot. It's it is such an interesting shift because I couldn't agree more. I think pre pandemic, I wanted to just go wherever. I didn't want anyone to know who I was, even if I was going to the same place, you know, five times a week. If the barista knew my name, I was like, hey, yeah, same cold brew. But now I'm like, oh, I I want to go to the hole in the wall. I want to go to the local. I want to sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name maybe they were onto something you know maybe maybe cheers was right this whole time i always say that i always say that i was like i want it to be like cheers and then like gen x people are like what's cheers and i'm like oh no i'm not cool anymore let me tell you though i this is i have so much american pride when it comes to the food culture of our country because it is changing so rapidly and any city you go to now is going to have great food. It was not always like this. I mean, I was touring as a comedian, you know, like 10 years ago, even 15, 10 years ago. It was very different. I mean, and especially when I grew up in like the 90s in New York, there even in New York City, there weren't that many good restaurants. I mean, and now it's like, I, I always say when Americans, when we put our mind to something, like we just go extra, you know, we'll get to the moon, we'll go to the moon, we'll invent the car, we'll do what we got to do. And I think that, you know, somewhere in the early 2000s, late 90s, America started becoming, you know, more food conscious. Maybe it's, I, I think it might be because of the food network. It might be the two of those things coming together. And, you know, Oh, we got into beer. We're gonna make the best beers in the world. Oh, we we get into, <laughs> and it's true. We make, we make better beer in America than anywhere in Europe. Like that's crazy. We're you know we our barbecue. We started getting crazy about barbecue. We make the best barbecue everywhere. I mean, we and and I think that now it's like that with whatever you want to call new American cuisine, which is like people are being hyper local. You know, Cleveland food is gonna taste different from Charlotte food. Is gonna taste different from Pittsburgh food and but it's all but it it is all like people are brimming with pride with a sense of terroir and even if your terroir is you know again Pittsburgh Pennsylvania you got a terroir <laughs> exactly it's it's a beautiful new approach because right on the touring idea it used to be yeah I'm gonna go fast casual because at least I can guarantee that it'll be edible. And now the last thing you'd ever think of is anything from a chain. Well, maybe not always, but nine times out of ten. Every once in a while, you're like, yeah, I need those garbage plate nachos, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, even then, I will say, a chicken McNugget with barbecue sauce? Ooh, baby. (laughs) I mean, find me one person who doesn't think that McDonald's fries are the platonic ideal I, and I, I don't ever want to be friends with that person. I mean, just, it, you you know what you're going to get before you get it. And if it tastes different, 
you need to not eat it because they did something wrong that day. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, here's the thing. I, I don't eat McDonald's fries often, but you know, once I, I was, I was drunk in an Uber and I was like, let's, let's go to the McDonald's. <laughs> so by the way, there's nothing more sad than being alone in an Uber in the, in the uh, line to, you know, the drive-through line at a McDonald's um, in Utah. That's where this was. And and I remember we you know, I got my chicken McNuggets. Uh, I, by the way, I don't do the chicken strips. No, baby. I want the McNugget. I want to make sure that chicken was put in a blender and shaped into into the boot. <laughs> I need the boot. I need the bell, yeah. whatever the other two are. Yes, I want the Pringles version of chicken and 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 the fries. And we started driving off and the fries. There's nothing worse in life than I think it goes like, Death of a parent, then then undercooked McDonald's fries. <laughs> McDonald's fries that have been let then been laying around. It's a yo, those are tied for first. So I was like, I was like, turn around. And he's like, are you serious? I was like, turn around. I do this once and and we went back, waited in line again. And this poor Uber driver was, I was like, I promise I'm gonna tip you well. <laughs> he was like, these, these LA douchebags. And <laughs> We got back and I was like, excuse me, I have McDonald's fries once a year. I just need them to be perfect. And you know what? She got it. She was like, I, I feel you. I feel you. And the driver's like, excuse me, I need to get back to my family. I was like, no, you will sit here. <laughs> so anyway, that's why I have a 2.2 rating on my Uber app. <laughs> well, as long as you can still call the car, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let uh, let me start to wind us down. I know we only have a couple minutes left here, uh, but when I say public library, what comes to mind? Free Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, access. <laughs> access is important. But I, I got to say, growing up, like the library to me was always like such an adventure because my immigrant parents were like always too cheap to buy books. Uh, so... Um, you know, the Great Neck Public Library, shout out to the Great Neck Public Library. Love you guys. We love them. We love what they're doing. Uh, if you are going out to eat, what meal are you looking for on the menu? Charcuterie. Man, my eyes will hone in on a charcuterie board like a heat-seeking missile. People are like, oh, they're so five years ago. I was like, well, then I want to time travel every night to five years ago. Cured meat is like a millennia long, like that was the first food that was made was curing meat. Don't forget like, oh, it's so five years ago. No, it's not. It's so 5,000 years ago. Right. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a little passe to be posting about it on social media when you make, you know, a charcuterie board the size of your table. That's fine. But we're not here to shame people for eating it. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, what project, of course, that you can talk about are you working on right now? I am developing a show for ABC right now that is based that is based off of a chapter in the book. Hey. Yeah. So um, my managers like slipped some chapters to producers and yeah. one of them really resonated um, about my my buddy Mo, the Iraqi Muslim uh, doctor. So um, it's like a medical comedy about an Iraqi Muslim doctor living in like um, very red state part of America. And then is there anything else you'd like to promote? Where can the listeners find you online? All of that good stuff. 
Yeah, um, my podcast is called Green Eggs and Dan. It's a it's a comedic food podcast. I interview celebrities, and every episode starts with an actual picture of the inside of their fridge. So, Love it. if you've ever wondered what's in Henry Winkler's fridge, you can find out. Um, and uh, yeah, my socials are Stand Up Dan everywhere because no one can spell a dude. <laughs> <laughs> gotta gotta love the gift right the gift of a last name that no one can spell oh my god literally half of my family spells it a-h-d-o-u-t and half of it spells it a-h-d-o-o-t even within my family we don't know how to spell our last name that you know that has to make tax season an extra pain <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> although knowing knowing my parent my dad he probably created the two different names just to evade taxes like oh that wasn't adult that was adults you know hey scam early scam often <laughs> scam early scam often grandma don't got no digital scale we are joe we, we are, are doing racking it. them up we're starting a we're we're gonna you know start a production company <laughs> no seriously <laughs> i'll i'll uh quick underwrite the llc and then we'll be good to go <laughs> They're going to be like, guys, these are the worst ideas we've ever gotten pitched on the Shark Tank. I'm like, no, they say, absolutely not. I have seen some episodes that have to be worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to take away from Undercooked? I don't know. I loved writing this book. It was so different. It's different from anything I've ever done. I love doing stand-up, but stand-up is always leaving the drama at home and just coming with the comedy. And this was the first time I brought the drama in with the comedy. Um, and I think it's really cool and really interesting. And at the very least, uh, you know, you go on a little culinary culinary adventure. And um, yeah, if you don't like it, post that you don't like it. And I will Venmo. No, that's not a smart thing. No, Joe is saying no. Joe is, Joe is saying no. Okay, do not. I will not Venmo you. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I look, it's weird, man. I don't know. I've never done this before, but people are liking it. And so, you know, I put, I, I will say, I put literally everything I got into this, into this book. Um, never, I've never worked so hard on anything in my life and I'm a pretty hard worker. So uh, I really hope, uh, I really hope people enjoy it, especially, you know, uh, book nerds that, uh, that listen to book podcasts. You know, I think my listeners are going to love it. Your approach to life, your approach to comedy, and of course, food. Uh, but Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and I forgot to mention, I also did the audio. I, I read for the audiobook, which, by the way, complete <laughs> utter minefield. Like, you're, I'm recording this, and I am, you know, it's very emotional to read your most, you know, inner secrets out loud and I was like I had to keep pausing to cry and it was almost like I was at a therapy session but instead of having a therapist on the other side of the glass it was like some like emotionless sound engineer <laughs> who's just like uh Dan take that again uh I hear sniffling I'm like oh, I'm sorry I'm just talking about the day my brother died yeah yeah Dan we got we're we're on a deadline here can we can we get going <laughs> Uh, Dan, we're we're at time, and you're choking through that line. Can you read it again? I just need a minute. <laughs> no. Nope. Oh man. Uh, but no, I really love doing that, and that's a whole nother layer because you can do fun voices and and voices of characters and stuff. So it was it was an amazing process. I don't know that I ever want to do it again. It's crazy. the The world of publishing 
is a different world of its own, which is so interesting to hear from you who has been a writer for TV, who have acted and you've just done so much to go like, you know, that was a ride and I I think I took it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the opposite of instant gratification, which is what I'm used to. The thing I love most about stand-up is you know right away if something's working or not because people aren't faking laughter. They laugh or they don't laugh. And people are always like, oh, it must it must suck when you bomb. I'm like, no, it's great when you bomb because now you know that didn't work. Let me try something else. This is different, man. This is like you write something for a year. You have no idea how this is going to be received. And it's like, all right, I guess it's go March 21st. It's going out into the world. Let's see what happens. It's terrifying. It, there is there is nothing that can prepare you for that because truly you are throwing it out to the wolves and hope that uh, they don't throw it back. <laughs> I know, especially when it's like your life story. Like it's one thing if it's like, Ooh. oh yeah, this piece of this piece of fiction sucked, but it's like, yeah, this guy's life blows. <laughs> You're like, well, yeah, that's kind of why I needed to get it off my chest. But sure, uh, forget about my feelings. <laughs> Oh, well, man. listeners, remember, you can get Undercooked on March 21st, anywhere you get your books or, of course, in the library reading app, Libby. Again, Dan, thank you so much. And everyone, as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. To learn about other evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.